Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Around the globe, artists are using their mediums to show how climate change is impacting our planet. Today, we're exploring the convergence of art and science. We'll be talking with artists using their craft to have conversations about our environment. We hear from Lynn Casabon. She's the artist behind the multidisciplinary project Losing Winter, who will join us from Australia. But first up, we're hearing from the Mattituck Museum right here in Connecticut. The exhibit, Sea Change, Sea Change, that's S-E-A Change and S-E-E Change, is raising awareness of how climate change is impacting our oceans. Joining us now is Kefi Feldman, who is the chief curator at the Mattituck Museum in Waterbury, Connecticut. Kefi, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. And joining us from Tucson, Arizona, is one of the featured artists in this exhibit, Sam Swan, who is an underwater explorer and ocean artist. Sam, welcome to where we live today. Hey, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we're excited that you're both here with us. And for our listeners, just a reminder that you can also join the conversation. Let us know if you have any questions, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So I want to start the conversation with you, Kefi. You know, can you give us an idea what this exhibit is about and why you want to do this right now? Uh, So this exhibition starts with the question, what if museums and artists use their platform to raise awareness about global climate change? Will we see change? Uh, So that's where the the title comes from, S-E-A change and S-E-E change. Uh, And so this exhibition contains the artwork of five visual artists and one poet, uh, and all of their work deals with um, the impact of global climate change uh, in a variety of different places, uh, most of which focus on the Arctic, uh, and in a variety of different media, and um, in a variety of different ways. Well, and of course, today we're talking about how to talk about climate change through art and using art as a way to have those conversations. But can you talk about, you know, what was the the impetus for this? What inspired you to do this exhibit in the first place? So the inspiration is twofold. Uh, The first is personal. in, in a former life, I was a, an archaeologist, and my research focused on the Roman Empire and how the empire impacted people's relationships with water in their provinces. And through that research, I found that the Romans were the first civilization, group, culture, uh, to uh, commodify the natural world at an industrial scale and to export that way of thinking um, globally with respect to the Roman Empire. And 2,000 years later, we are living with a legacy of those ways of being in the world. And so as a museum curator, it's very important to me to be continuing to communicate that message that um, not only are we not in right relationship with the natural world in this moment, but it's something that has a long history. 
uh, this exhibition particularly came from uh, the mind of uh, Matt Wood, who is an artist based in Woodbury, Connecticut. And he came to me and said, you know, I have this group of artists whose work I would like to show. And um, the, the work was very compelling. And I, I saw the story in there. And so I said, yes, Matt, we'll, we'll take this, this group of artists and we'll, we'll make a show out of it. And that's how Sea Change was born. Well, I, it always blows my mind how history connects with the present. I mean, it makes so much sense that, that it would. But the fact that 2,000 years later, we're kind of doing the same thing kind of this, in this cycle is it's pretty amazing to me. So you mentioned this is a group of artists. Can you talk about some of the artists that's going to be a part of this? Yeah. So um, I'll, I'll let Samantha Schwan talk about her work uh, herself. Um, <laughs> but we. Uh, we have the work of Jeffrey Blondes, who is uh, American but based in France, and he is a media artist. So his work is uh, time-based. That's what we say in the art world. And another way to say that is it's film. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> <laughs> yes, a time-based media piece. Um, and uh, he he makes 24, 52, 100-plus-hour films of, of places in the natural world. Uh, and so this, this work is a real meditation on a place um, in Sweden that's about 200 miles north of the Arctic Circle. It's uh, called Lake Tonotrask. And this is a 24-hour piece that just shows a day in, in the life of this place. Uh, we have the work of Daniel Baxter, who is an illustrator, and he combines maps and images to make statements about um, many things, one of which is the environment. Uh, we have the work of Sandy Carlson, who's the poet laureate of Woodbury, and she has a poem in the show that talks about the, the earth, uh, relationship with the earth, mothers, and the loss of language. Um, we have the work of Sam Schwan, who's an underwater photographer, and of Matt Wood, who is a multidisciplinary artist. He has painting, photography, and sculpture in the show. Well, I love the scope of this. It's it's not just one medium. It's so many different kinds, especially learning time-based pieces now. That's that's <laughs> new for me. Now I'm never going to look at a film the same way again. And Sam, we want to bring you in to talk about your work. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm sensing there's a lot of former lives here. So before we get to your, your amazing artwork, you started working as an underwater photographer, but you were already a diver before that. Can yes, about, Yeah, talk I about was. your experience. Oh, I started diving when I was uh, 15. So I, I really got into it by, by complete accident. Um, it was during school and every year they, they would send us on a five-day out week. And I was really late in turning my form in and diving was the only thing left. <laughs> so um, I took my open water course in Victoria, which is Vancouver Island, Canada, and as soon as I slipped beneath the waves, I just was uh, astounded at the variety and marine life that's, that's there. I had really no idea. And then when I became a, you know, grew up and kind of through the years started training and doing more diving, um, I was just absolutely fascinated by all the, the marine life that was there in Canada, which I had absolutely no idea of. So my travels have kind of taken me all around the world. Um, I definitely have a focus and a, and a love for sharks and shark habitat. 
And I, I guess in 2017, 2016 was when I really embarked on my first project, which was Hope Spots, which the work in, in the current exhibit uh, really concentrates on is, is Hope Spots. And you know, you started diving, I think, in 1994, and you know we're, mm-hmm. we're 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 having this conversation today. How have you seen the oceans change? You no, know, from that first moment you took a glimpse of underwater until today, how has that changed for you? Well, for me, I've noticed a lot of different changes. Um, so I have definitely noticed the amount of marine life has 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 been uh declining and especially in certain places which are you know notably have like marine parks there's uh, definitely a decrease in the amount of marine life the other areas which have been affected by climate change would be areas which have a high amount of coral so i for example i've done a lot of work in the florida keys and there's definitely been a um a decline, a massive decline in the corals there uh, due to heat exchanges. So for me, um, I've noticed it in almost every location that I've been in, whether or not it's been through the corals reacting to temperature changes in the ocean. Uh, For example, another place would be California, which they are well known for the for their kelp. And I think it was Lynn who was going to be talking, or Liz who was going to be talking a little bit about kelp later on. But um, San Diego has been affected by the kelp forests. Um, and then also the plastics, the amount of mm-hmm. garbage that's in the ocean, uh, definitely. So, so for me... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, go for it. Continue. My, my current uh, work is focused in, in the twilight zone, which is, uh, you know, new a different layer of ocean that begins at about 660 feet. And so that area is a little bit more susceptible um, and is responsible for a little bit more of, um, you know, it can sequester up to 50% of the uh, carbon. So they're, they're suggesting that carbon dioxide would jump by almost nearly 50% without the twilight zone. So that is an area that I'm currently concentrated on. I, I just wanted to to jump in and say that I forgot to mention the work of Zoe Matheson, who's also in the show. And um, her work her work also deals with um, plastics in the ocean. Mm. So um, yeah. I, I didn't want to yeah. leave her out. It's very important to make no, sure that absolutely. She... Like we, I, like I think we were talking about earlier, it's like they're all so connected, and 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 it's interesting mm-hmm. seeing seeing modern sensibilities affect affect the the ocean. And and Sam, I want to ask you, um, when did you make the connection that you could use photographs to start conversations about about the ocean? But I want to go into first because we've been talking about you know, experiencing the underwater environment and, and, and seeing the changes that you're seeing. So what has that been like capturing what you're seeing? You know, how do you go about doing that? What's your process? Because it sounds like it can be a pretty emotional experience. Definitely. So I I was really inspired um, when I, I came across a, a video and it was the, uh, uh, in 2009, legendary oceanographer Dr. Sylvia Earle um, presented a TED Prize winning talk on her vision uh, of establishing a network of um, oceanographers, of scientists, of 
photographers, anybody who is interested in protecting the world's oceans. And when I saw that video, it changed. Uh, it basically altered kind of the course of my path as, as a photographer. And it was then that I decided to dedicate my career to ocean conservation. So I began my project on, on, on photographing what are known as hope spots. And hope spots are areas of the ocean. They might be large or small, but they're scientifically identified as critical to the health of the ocean. And I was really inspired by the concept of hope that, you know, there might be changes in the ocean and we might be running out of time. But if we concentrate on kind of the most important areas that there is still left, there's there's still hope and time left. So I've concentrated on areas which are critical to shark habitat or critical to megafauna habitat. And we think of climate change as, as small or uh, not small, but we think of climate change as um, perhaps not having the global or oceanic effect. But what I found through my work is that um, these areas, whether or not they might be local or a little bit more far reaching are all affected in some way. So for example, through my work, I realized that, you know, warming oceans can affect the shellfish industry and the shellfish then has a spillover onto larger animals. So for example, the shark habitats, uh, shark populations, and then these animals tend to be more of a keystone species. So it's these small changes that we don't really realize can have such a big impact on the foods we eat or uh, the places that we live. And I love that you mentioned hope because I feel like when we have these conversations on on where we live, when we when we talk about climate change, we actually come. We, you know, we're we're talking a lot about very desperate situations, but we also come away from these conversations with a lot of hope. And I want to ask Sam, like, was there a moment? I'm sure there's moments for you, but was there a particular moment where you captured something and you're like, oh my gosh, like this is this is it. This is what I want to do, or it was so powerful that you're like, this is the path I have to take. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, and you're right, there has been several. Um, I think most most recently, or one of the most impactful was when I was um, in Moria. And Moria is a small island um, in French Polynesia. And it's this little tiny island that is circled by the most incredible coral reef. And it acts as a habitat. You have this entire ecosystem just contained in the lagoons. And the lagoons are sheltered by this coral, which is absolutely beautiful and stunning. And it's so loud. When you're underwater, what sometimes we forget is that there's so much sound under there. And the difference between a healthy coral reef and one that is, you know, um, being impacted by climate change your human impact that sound is so different and i remember hearing the sound of like it was a, it, almost like a rice crispy sound it sounds like snap crackle pop and you hear it and i remember thinking man this is such a healthy reef 
and then comparing it to other locations such as Florida and the Keys, which I know has been really impacted by the warming oceans. Um, so that really inspired me because there are, in each location that I go to and I travel, um, I'm always interested in the local initiatives that are happening. And I know Moria is one of the places where you have an organization known as the Coral Gardeners, and they're very active in reestablishing their coral reef. They're implanting corals, they're working very, very hard to maintain the coral. Um, so that was one. But I think the most truly defining was being inspired by the story of Cabo Pulmo. And Cabo Pulmo is a small fishing village located um, in Baja, California. And in 1995, um, it, it was a village, I think, of about 15 families. So very, very small. And they were finding that um, the fishing charters that were coming in were coming in to kind of um, they were fishing and they were also accidentally destroying their coral reef, which was estimated to be 20,000 year old. And so the, the community petitioned the government and nearly 14 years later, after creating this marine park, they found a 114% increase in the amount of species that had returned to the area. Wow. So for me, it was really inspiring because you had this, story of a small community of just really concerned individuals who had you know petitioned together who had worked together and made a real impact in their local environment and for me that was really inspiring because i knew that you know we all have a part to play and we can all create change um just by you know focusing on something that we really care about and and moving that forward well, the impact I didn't expect to have today is next time I bite into a Rice Krispie treat, which is going to be really soon, actually, is I'm going to be <laughs> I'm going to be thinking about coral and what right? I can do to uh, to help. Because no joke, there are some in my drawer that's waiting for me as we speak. And um, I want I want to get to Kefi um, to to respond to some of the things that you said, Sam. But before we we do that, I do want to ask him, especially with with your photographs and real quickly here can you talk about the ways that art can capture our complex feelings about climate change yes i think so i mean for me when i'm photographing especially in the water i think what happens is that it's it's a different type of you know if you're photographing on land you know you can kind of control how things go or the lighting or whatever but underwater you're just such a passive observer and i think for me that's one of the most it's a beautiful thing but it's also where you have to kind of let go and just let whatever happens come your way and so when i'm photographing um i try and put myself in in a different environment. So for example, you know, I can go to a location which is known for its sharks or whales or kelp forests or whatever. But once I'm in the water, you just have to let what happens happen and then photograph that moment. And I think there's a beauty in that. And whenever I'm photographing or, or, or uh, in the water, 
I think that's how I'm able to kind of connect with nature on that, on that plane. And so I think that's one of the things is when I'm speaking with individuals or, or I'm talking about my work, I think that's one of the things that I connect with, uh, with people who either enjoy the ocean and have never dived or are curious about the ocean. Um, that's one of the things that I can connect, kind of connect on is that you're in this really peaceful environment that maybe it seems scary. Maybe it seems unfamiliar because we're, you know, as humans, we're, we're kind of desensitized in the ocean. We lose all of our senses. So, you know, our vision is off, our touch is off. So we have no sense of smell. So we're really stripped to the core um, and just left to observe. And I think that there is a real power in that because it really connects us to the ocean and connects us to the natural world. Well, I think it's also changing the way we view going with the flow, right? It sounds like yeah. and we're yeah. going gonna to flow Absolutely. right into Kefi. We have to go to a break, but I want to ask Kefi real quick, you know, respond to some of the things that Sam has said. Uh, well, Sam has uh, just provided so much amazing content about her work and her process and uh, what motivates her. Um, there, there are a couple of points that I would like to draw out. Uh, the first is, you know, is about hope uh, that that. Um, we're not totally powerless, that we each have the power to enact change, whether small or large. Uh, so one of the things that the Mattituck Museum is doing to provide a platform for people to make a change is that during the month of April, uh, one of our generous donors from the community is going to match $1 for every person who buys admission to the museum. Wow. Um, so April is Earth Month, so we figured that would be appropriate. That's great. Um, so by coming out to see the exhibition, by supporting the Mattituck Museum, you'll also be supporting Mission Blue, the organization that Sam uh, is so closely associated with and that is doing such important work to save the world's oceans. Um, and if visitors don't want to wait until April to come to the Mattituck Museum, we also have a link on the landing page for this exhibition uh, where you can donate directly to Mission Blue. And um, the Mattituck will have its very own donation link so that Mission Blue will know how many people in our community are showing up to support the world's oceans. Uh, and that, that feels incredibly important that um, not only are we raising awareness, but we're providing an opportunity for people to make meaningful change. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. You are listening to Kevi Feldman, who is the chief curator at the Mattituck Museum in Waterbury. And you're also listening to Sam Swan, who's an underwater explorer and ocean artist. Thank you so much, Sam, for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And coming up next, we hear from an artist joining us from Down Under, Lynn Kazaban, who's the artist behind Losing Winter, joins us from Australia to talk about how she's capturing memories of winter. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation, outside the body, oxygenation of blood. 
It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we've been hearing about how artists are capturing our complicated feelings about climate change. Earlier this year, Where We Live talked about how snow loss is impacting our ecosystems and community right here in Connecticut. And joining us now is Lynn Kazavan, who's been exploring the idea of losing the winter we once knew through her multidisciplinary traveling art exhibit. Lynn, welcome to the show today. Hello, thank you for having me. And for our listeners, you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Lynn, we've been having deep conversations about climate change. Can you talk about what inspired you to start this project, Losing Winter? Yeah, sure. Um, Yeah, the project started um, back in 2018, actually. And I, I would say the kind of inspirational moment for me was when I came across a photograph of myself as a child, I grew up in Michigan and near uh, the lakes. And um, this particular photograph captured me actually feeling very miserable uh, because I wasn't dressed properly for skating on the lake where we used to skate as kids. And um, it just brought me back to that moment and a feeling of, of coldness. And also um, it kind of turned in my head this feeling of sadness that the lake, Lake St. Clair, where I used to skate doesn't, reliably freeze anymore and so my nephews who who uh, grew up in the same place um don't experience the same winter i do and so that at that moment it kind of made me realize that within my lifetime um you know that this the seasonal patterns that we've that I've become accustomed to have have changed and i wondered if other people were having the same experiences so I, this project was kind of born from that moment and wanting to talk to other people and hear about um, their memories of winter from from their past. And so that's sort a, of the seed of it. And it's a visuals visual arts project. You now tell us a little bit more about about the project itself. Yeah, it, it's it is multidisciplinary project, multimedia project. It it is visual, but it's also um, audible. So I, I record memories from people on video. Um, actually, the first uh, realization of the project I did with a museum in Bucharest, Romania was audio only, but I've since switched to now recording people on video to capture their memories. And then the exhibitions I do are site-specific in the sense that, um, it, it, depending on the location where I'm working and the institution that's hosting me, um, the display of the project will differ. Um, so, for example, I recently did a, um, a an activation of the project in the Netherlands, in Breda, the Netherlands. And for that one, I worked with another artist, um, Anne Leidekers, who's a theater artist. And we worked with uh, three young um, performers. We created a performance and an installation. Um, but the memories are actually collected from um, individuals who are aged 80 and and up at a um a senior um, elder community in um in Breda 
I love that you have specificity to the location that makes so much sense in my mind. And, and, and earlier we were talking to Sam about the ways you use art to capture the feelings about climate change and and losing the seasonal patterns that we were once used to. So I want to ask, you know, you, you just mentioned that you, you chose to go through this um, process by collecting interviews and, and listening to people's stories, taking photographs. Can you talk about what that experience has been like? Um, yeah, it's been, uh, I guess, cathartic, mm. one word that comes to mind. I mean, I think that, like I said, my the beginning of the project was my own e- ecological grief over the loss of the winter from my own childhood. And and I've found that other people um, have, have some of those same feelings as well. Um, it, it's not only about, uh, you know, losing the seasons because of climate change, but also as you get older as well, things change in terms of your relationship to your own bodies and selves and uh, environment. So it's also about that too. Um, so it's it, it, it's kind of um, <clears throat> comforting to know that I'm not alone in, in the feelings of sadness that I might be having. It's also um, the other goal of the project is to, like I'm just describing this one activation in the, in the Netherlands, is to connect uh, young people with older people who have these memories so that the young people can listen to them and kind of know how things used to be. Um, there's a term that was co- coined by a um, philosopher, Peter Kahn, environmental amnesia. And that's when um, with each generation, um, the standard for what's normal in the environment, in this particular case, the, the seasons, um, changes. So what what young people might think of as a normal winter in Connecticut is not the same as uh, somebody who's, you know, in their 80s. And so I want to, you know, kind of bring these two groups of people together so that uh, we know what we're what we're losing culturally, as well as personally, from these changes. Well, and you mentioned environmental amnesia, and and clearly, you described the importance of, of the intergenerational aspect of it, understanding what we're all losing, I guess, collectively. Um, but there are only certain memories that exist in other people that I can learn from, I guess, in, from this conversation. You know, so what does what does the phenomenon of environmental amnesia mean to you? Well, it, it means you know precisely that the, the people who who are you know coming up, the people in their twenties, are thinking that it's either it's a particular norm for winter in, in the Michigan I I grew up in. Uh, it's not the same as the one that I have. So you kind of forget and you you sort of just just go on and think that's normal or you, um, you know, the what I've learned like in uh, in the Netherlands is kind of the, the winters they're having there in, in the southern part of the Netherlands are more um, <clears throat> rainy and mm-hmm. there, there's less snow. Uh, it's also more kind of gray and, and miserable. So people are not really enjoying the winters uh, like people when they were younger, when there was more snow and you could go out and play in the snow. So um, it's a, a kind of a collective forgetting, I guess, of mm-hmm. how things used to be. Um, and I, I think that, you know, it's not it's not only sad, but it's also uh, kind of leads to a kind of passivity and acceptance to the changes that are going on um, because of climate change. And so I think we need to remember what we're losing so that we're more apt to um, do something about it. Um, and, to and, mitigate those impacts. Right. And as we continue to navigate through the complications of these feelings and, and to, to try to mitigate those impacts, you know, as you as you collect these memories from from various generations of people, are you discovering you no, know, are people having complicated feelings about winter? Is it very different from people to people? You know, what has that been like for you? 
Yes. Um, you know, some, some people don't like winter. So, <laughs> you know, sometimes I talk to people who, who say, well, I never really liked it anyway. But at the same time, um, you know, it's, uh, I think that, you know, people are it, it just asking the question to share a memory makes them reflect on um, how, how it used to be, how they used to be as a child and how they, you know, maybe enjoyed winter when they were a child and now they don't so much when they get older. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's all, all filtered through the, through human beings. I guess, you know, part of the, the aim of the project is also to kind of balance out the science, which is of course, incredibly important. This, there's the science that that's coming out the data that, that says climate change, the climate change impacts that are happening around the world. But it's another thing for us to feel it, um, you know, in our, in our bodies and in our emotions and and our personal level. And, And there's also a whole host of, um, cultural traditions that we have associated with the seasons and what are, what is going to happen to those as um, this, the seasons are, are shifting and changing. Some of those cult, cultural traditions, um, you know, might disappear. Well, and you mentioned earlier too, because you, you've been to so many different locations and every location is, is a little different from the next. And this exhibit is also site specific as you described. So can you, can you talk about what does that look like? You know, how have you been able to sort of tailor each exhibit to the location that it's at? Yeah, so I mentioned the one in, in Breda, the, uh, another one in Maryland, where I'm based in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, was with the Maryland um, Center for History and Culture. In that case, um, I worked with a curator there to curate an exhibition of photographs and films from their collection showing Mar- Maryland went in winter over a 100-year period. And then those memories I collected were from people in Maryland, um, and those were set within that exhibition. So to kind of show the historical images that I chose a hundred years because um, it matched the collection, <laughs> but, but it was also like a kind of a, a, a lifetime in a way, um, a, a long lifetime, but anyway, a person can live that long. Um, and so, you know, to kind of show how, how things used to be through the the filter of photographers in Maryland and, um, and then, uh, you know, set those against the, those, the contemporary people telling their, telling you their memories. Um I also did a, a version of the project in Massachusetts, na- neighboring it with um, at Orsman at Smith College, and mm-hmm. in that case, uh, talked to um, older people in Springfield, and then worked with um, Smith Theater students who did um, who listened to those recordings and then did um, original monologues that they performed, and I recorded those on video. And so the installation in that case in the, in the, in the gallery was the combination of those videos of the young, of the, um, Smith students, and then the older, uh, people from Springfield, um, kind of, uh, as a counterpoint to each other in a kind of dialogue. Um, yeah, so it's, it, it depends on the situation. It depends on the, the budget of the institution I'm working with as right. well, like what, what, what's actually possible. So I, I, I like to call my, my practice modular. I kind of adapt it to the situation, um, and um, you know, do do as much as I can right. uh, with with what I have. Well, and before we go to break, I want to ask because earlier you mentioned collective forgetting, but your project really also captures the importance of community and also collective memory. So, can you talk about you know why was it important to capture these memories and preserve them? 
Um, it's I think of it as like a time capsule. It's it's a you know uh, almost like a kind of it's, in, I'm um, had this aspiration that the project will live on into the future and that people can go back and listen to these memories and actually you know get some information from from this archive of of memories. Um, it's it's also I th it's a way to bring people together, you know, to have a conversation. I think that the, the emotions that we're having and that, that it's only going to increase in terms of the impacts we're experiencing with, of climate change. It's really important that we talk about it. It's not so we can't just kind of forget about it and just pretend like it's not happening. We can, but then it's going to have impacts on our mental health and our physical health. Um, and so the project seeks to bring people together to talk and to come at come together as a community and there's strength in that what we can do um you know together is so much greater than what we can do uh, on our own um you know just kind of uh feeling sad about what's happening and not, and feeling powerless to do anything about it and one final question for Kefi uh, before we go to break Kefi Feldman who's the chief curator at the Mattacook Museum you know as a curator hearing what you know Lynn just shared you know what are your thoughts uh, well <clears throat> am I you can hear me? Sorry. <laughs> Go for it. Okay, great. Um, <laughs> so, Lynn, this is such important work, and I'm just so grateful for the, the work that you're doing to create this catalog of memories. Um, and there's a way in which, uh, by, by creating this archive, as you called it, um, not only does it provide us an opportunity to learn from the past, but it does provide us an opportunity to, to connect with our emotions so much of the conversation about climate change is as data, um, and I think a lot of people may feel um, lectured by it, and um, and also hopeless. Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. by by grounding it in story and experience, it provides people um, a real emotional touch point. Uh, I think to connect to to this issue that impacts all of us, I mean, as your work clearly proves. Well, thank you so much, Kefi, for, for responding. And, and you were listening to Kefi Feldman, who's the chief curator at the Mattituck Museum in Waterbury here in Connecticut. And you were also listening to Lynn Kazbun. Thank you so much for being on our show today and sharing your story with us, Lynn. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is a great conversation. Thank you. And coming up next, we hear from a local Connecticut artist, but today she's joining us from Norway. We'll talk about how her next project that will focus on one of where we live's favorite topics, kelp. You can join the conversation 888-720-9677 or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Today, we've been talking about the intersection of art and environmentalism. And joining us now from Norway is local Connecticut artist and Where We Live favorite, Elizabeth Ellenwood. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being on Where We Live today. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is absolutely amazing show, and I'm really, really happy to be a part of it. Well, we're excited that you're a part of it, and we're even more excited that you're currently joining us from Norway at the Arctic Frontiers Conference. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, um, the conference um, just ended, and it was absolutely incredible. And I kind of laughed a little bit when Lynn was talking about how some people don't like winter, and I 
do not like winter and I always find myself in a Norwegian winter. <laughs> so um, You manifested yeah. that. You manifested it. <laughs> I know. Um, but the, uh, yeah, the conference has been full of science and policy and anything going on from glaciers um, to uh, artificial intelligence happening in the Arctic. Um, and as an artist, it's interesting because some of the things I really connect with and then other times I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so much information um, and overwhelming, but in a really good way. Um, so it's it's been really, really great. And so I know you're working on so many things, but can you tell our listeners a little bit about your art and a book, a book project that you're working on? Yeah, so I um, traveled to Norway in 2021-2022 as a Fulbright scholar when I was working with um, uh, researchers and scientists at the Norwegian Geotechnical Institute here in Oslo. And the project was all about art and science as collaboration and how we can make work that's more collaborative and works with um, communication. So we came up with a book called The Interweaving of the Synthetic and the Natural World. It was uh, created by me and Hans-Peter Arp, who's an environmental chemist here in, uh, in Oslo. And the book goes through my photographs and his scientific writing, talking about how we've gotten to a point with pollution where you kind of can't separate it. And um, what do you do with that information, right? So like it's being, nature is being changed at so many different levels because of the pollution. Um, and how do we get people to like understand it and see it and talk about it? So um, so we made a book together and that was really exciting and I'm really proud of it. And um, yeah. Well, I, and I think with a lot of the things we talk about, there's always a, a sense of interconnectedness with everything. So mm. what is it like to yeah. do a sort of a continuation of your work in this part of the world, you know, in Norway? Are there any differences that you've experienced there? Um, no, I mean, I think we're all kind of having the same conversations, maybe in different ways, but I always go back to the pollution that I'm seeing. So like back home in Connecticut, going on beach walks, um, and then here in Oslo, going along the shore, like all of the pollution is the same. Like I'm picking up plastic bags and bottles and fragments. Um, so I think, you know, we're all kind of having these same conversations about what we're seeing. Being here in Norway, it's, um, I feel like I talk about more, um, I feel like I talk about more of climate change and things that are going on in the environment. It could just be because I'm like really focusing on my work when I'm here. Um, but also they have different systems in place. Like their recycling system is different than ours back home in Connecticut. And um, so we talk a lot about those differences. And um, yeah, but there there are a lot of you know similarities between right. what we're seeing back in the States and what we're seeing here. Well, and then you mentioned Lynn talking about winters mm. and, and the yeah. cha changing winters at all parts of the world. And you found yourself in a place that's, I think, kind of well known for their winters. But are you yep. are you <laughs> are you hearing <laughs> or experiencing changing winters in Norway as well? Yeah. You know, it's kind of fascinating. When I was up in uh, Tromsø for the conference, I was headed there and I'm like, it's supposed to be the best time to see the Northern Lights in 2024. Mm -hmm. This is going to be wonderful. And then the week that I arrived, it wound up being the worst 
storm winds they've ever seen in 40 years the locals were telling us like they had like hurricane style winds which felt very similar to the winds that i experienced growing up in florida um it just was colder and comes with snow um but also in oslo the people i've been talking to have said the winter this year has been um quite extreme but then also a lot of rain i don't know who mentioned rain earlier um it was probably lynn but yeah, they've been seeing more rain as well. And then it freezes. So it's it is a slippery mm. situation outside right now. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you slid your way over to us today yep. so we can have I this did. conversation. And and you yeah, know, you've been, I did for sure. And you've been following you've been following the conversation this morning and, and we've heard mm. from from other guests talk about using art as as a way mm. to talk about climate change. And you've written about it using art as an entry point to talk about climate. Yeah. So can you can you talk about that? Yeah, of course. I think that, you know, we're, we tend to look a little longer at something, especially, um, especially if it's nice to look at or a little bit maybe easier to look at. So I usually use kind of beauty in my work to invite people in and give them that entry point of something that might be aesthetically pleasing. It could be color, it could be shape. Um, I use a lot of Petri dishes in my mm -hmm. photographs. So that's enough of a little bit of a a nod to the scientific world because um, everyone kind of knows what a Petri dish looks like. But um, I think once you're allowed to kind of view something, it'll give you a connection point that you might not have gotten if you were reading a text, right? Mm -hmm. And I also think it gives you some, um, some entry points that goes across languages. So you might not be able to read whatever language is being shown to you. But if you're looking at a photograph that um, has a plastic bag that's like floating in the water, you can definitely connect with that and you can see what's happening. Um, and I think it just, it kind of allows us to explore that space on our own level and see how we are reacting and how we are feeling. A lot of people have been talking about in the show, like um, people getting concerned. And I think art allows people to get concerned a little bit more because we're showing you more about what's going on. And um, I want people to be concerned, you know, I want them to see what we're talking about and and have that moment of being like, this is alarming. And maybe you get a little angry when you start seeing all the plastic in a different way. And that's OK. That's a part of the process. Well, and yeah. especially with what you just described and we've been we've been going back and forth a lot about, you know, history and coming into the present mm. and what we're seeing. So so with art sort of as a crux to start the conversation, you know, what do you think about mm -hmm. using that as as a way to to talk about what could be happening in the climate rather than responding to what is happening in the climate? Ooh, yeah. Um, yeah, I think a lot about history. I also think a lot about like my medium of photography and its history. And unfortunately, photography has a lot of like waste stream in their in their mm -hmm. history. And that's not great either. Right. Um, so it's really easy to snowball when you start thinking about histories of a medium as well. Um, hmm. So, yeah, I, I'm not sure I'm answering the question completely, but I'm just thinking a lot about like how how we can think about histories, not only of ourselves, but also as artists and like where that comes into play, too. Um, I have a series called Fading Reefs, and that kind of speaks to something Sam was talking about, which is um, all the coral reefs that were, were changing. I use the anthotype process, which is a handmade photography process using um, plant juices that are sensitive to sunlight. Um, so the whole 
process speaks to um, the bleaching of like the coral reefs through this photographic process that's been around since like late 1800s. So I like to use the history of like photography in ways to kind of communicate history of like what's happening with the reefs. Um, so that's one example of that too. So got about two minutes left here, but I want to ask, you know, can, oh. you, can you tell our listeners about your next big project, which I believe involves kelp? Yeah. So I also work with uh, Stonington Kelp Company, who are absolutely amazing. And if you don't know about them in Connecticut, definitely look them up because we're gearing into kelp season right now. And I'm going to be making a lot of work kind of celebrating the kelp and um, making different kind of photographs uh, to be installed at the Shipwright's Daughter, the restaurant in um, um, Mystic. And it's going to be great. There's going to be a lot of art and a lot of delicious kelp. So you can look at the art on the walls and then order some kelp-related dishes in April for Kelp Week. And um, yeah, I think it's about celebrating the resource of um, of the kelp itself and kind of showing that there are a lot of pollution and a lot of things going wrong, but there's a lot of right. things going well. And um, sugar kelp is one of those things. And kelp farming can definitely help with um, where we are with our oceans right now. So that's pretty exciting. It is exciting. And it sounds like you have a lot yeah. of hope as well. I do have a lot of hope, very much so. Well, thank you very much for sharing that with us. We like to leave our conversations with a little hope. So I hope uh, our yeah. listeners uh, feel hopeful as well. Uh, you've been listening to Elizabeth Ellenwood. Thank you so much for being on the show today and sharing your story with us. Thank you so much. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. 